uh, bring you greetings from Chevrolet Baptist Church, where I'm, I'm privileged, as Rocky said, privileged to serve as, as one of the elders there, pastoring there, in addition to my work with Nine Marks and writing and speaking and teaching and the stuff I do. Uh, also, that means sometimes I get to travel to other churches like this one and, and, and talk about what the Bible says, especially about being a church. But because I'm traveling, one of the things I like to do if I'm away from my family and kids is to have churches greet them. So, here we go. Oh, wait. We turn this around. Okay. Hello. Good morning, sweet daughters. I am here at First, not First, sorry, Evergreen Baptist Church in San Gabriel Valley, and they want to greet you. So, church, on the count of three, you're going to see, say, hello, Lehman ladies, all right? Do we need to practice? Are you okay? All right. On one, two, three. And they really mean that. <laughs> Love you. All right, so I'll send that to them in a little bit. That way they just get to know what I'm doing and vague, vague way be a part of it. But thank you again for greeting me. And it's, it's a privilege to serve you and this congregation and, and, and Rocky and his wife and his family and, and the, the pastors here in general. What I want to talk to you about this morning, I'm not going to give a straight expositional talk. I like straight expositional talks in which you're just unpacking a text. I think that's, that's a good ordinary diet for a church. But since I'm here as a guest preacher, I'm going to do something half expositional. We're going to start with a text, but then I'm going to spend a lot of time applying it in one particular area. It's just the area of discipling. That's, that's what we're going to think about. What is, what is discipling? But the text we're going to start with is Ephesians 4. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers... Guys like Rocky and, and the other brothers. Two, equip the saints for the work of ministry. Four, building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Two, mature manhood. Two, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want to notice five things, observe five things in this text with you, and then we're going to have a little test, all right? First, notice what the pastor's job description consists of. Equipping. Equipping the saints. Verse 11, they equip the saints. That's you. Second thing to observe. What do they equip you to do? Well, what does it say? For ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, who's responsible to do the ministry in this church? The pastors and you. Y'all are responsible right? Third thing to observe in this text, how long does this process go on? How long are you responsible for ministering to one another and building one another up in Christ? Well, it says you're to do it until you are united, mature, and steadfast. Look at verse 13, until 
we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the third. That's how long we do it. You're united and mature. Fourth thing to observe, why? Why do you minister to one another like this? Well, so that you would hold fast to the truth and not be deceived. You you see a, a, a purpose clause there in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Oh, that, that sounds interesting. I'll kind of get blown over here. Oh, that, that, oh man, that's intriguing. You never heard of oh, blown over there. No, no, no. Be deceived by human cunning, crafty books, crafty teachers, crafty movements, the latest, the most interesting, the bestseller. There it is on the stand in the airport or at Walmart. A friend says, oh, have you read this? Have you watched this teacher? Careful. You're to minister to each other, to build each other up, to prevent that. And then a fifth and final thing to observe in this text. How do you perform this ministry in one another's lives? By speaking biblical words to each other. Verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Every part has a job to do. And for every part, part of that job is speaking words. Speaking words in love to build each other up. Uh, Paul picks up the same point. Look down at verse 25. He, he says it again in a couple of other moments. Look at verse 25. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you. Okay, who's responsible? Each one of you. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. We're one body. We belong to each other. Speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. This couldn't couldn't be clearer, could it? And then look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. How how are you speaking to one another? What's your agenda? Is your agenda to speak words of grace that build up? Not every word at every time, as fits the occasion. I don't know, this is a good, this brother may need to hear that, but this is not the right time for that. I'm going I'm to hold my tongue right now. I'm going to wait for the right time. But my goal always is to build up, to give grace. That's the goal. So that the body builds itself up in love. Right? Okay, I told you a quiz is going to follow. You guys ready? It's quiz time. I'm actually going to have you raise your hands. All right, pop quiz. Seriously, Jonathan, this is why we came to church. I went to school. I didn't, I'm going to do that here. Okay, here, question number one. It's a multiple choice question. Number one, where does Paul envision the Christian life being lived out? Where does Paul envision the Christian life being lived out? I'm going to give you four options. A, by oneself at home, looking only to your own personal Bible reading. Any, anybody for that? Okay. By oneself, communing with God in nature. Anybody for that? Okay, uh, through a casual fellowship of Christian friends. Any hands? Uh, letter D, in the fellowship of believers who regularly gathered together under the instruction of a group of men set apart as pastors for the instruction of the Word in the context of being committed to helping one another grow in unity, maturity, and the fullness of Christ. Anybody for letter D? Good, Good. yeah, yeah, you're, you're cluing in. Multiple choice question number two. According to this passage, who is responsible for the ministry of the Word in this church, in Evergreen Baptist Church? Is it A, the pastors, B, the members, 
or C, both of the above? Okay, there you go. That's right. Okay, a few true-false questions. Are you ready? Just making sure we're drilling this in. That's what we're doing here. True or false? In this passage, Paul calls you, if you are a Christian, to put yourself under faithful pastors. True or false? Just say it out loud. True. True or false? In this passage, Paul calls you, if you are a Christian, to speak the truth in love to other Christians. True or false? True or false? In this passage, Paul calls you, if you are a Christian, to listen to other brothers and sisters speak the truth in love to you. True or false? Okay, you all get A pluses. You've also testified to what you know you are called to do. You know you are all brothers and sisters of Evergreen Baptist Church. You are responsible for this. So if there's one thing you get out of this sermon this morning, the ministry of the Word, which, which might begin here in the pulpit, it comes out and it goes to you. And now you have a job. And you're responsible for the ministry of the Word in this church. It starts here, but it goes to all of you. The ministry of the Word belongs to all of you. And this is the life of being a Christian. This is Christianity 101. This is not AP Christianity, Advanced Christianity, 400-level Christianity, Pro-NFL Christianity. No, this is basic 101 Christianity. Being a Christian equals helping other Christians follow Jesus, building them up in love in the Word. Okay, that's our text. We're going to spend some time now sort of applying that, thinking about what that means in discipling. What is discipling? Seven points about discipling this morning. Rocky said a few moments ago, this is what is, is one of the, at the heart of this church. It's at the drumbeat of this church. We're, we're going to unpack just in a basic way. Number one, discipling begins with love and joy. Number one, discipling begins with love and joy. It always strikes me how Paul loves the churches to whom he's writing. I'm, I'm just going to read a few texts. You can write down the references if you want. Look at them later. 2 Corinthians 2.6. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you, says Paul. Philippians 4.1. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved you hear the apostle's heart? Philemon 9. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Discipling has to start with love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We listen to the people who love us. If, if you come to me and I know you love me and you give me a hard word, I'm going to have a hard time hearing it, but I know you love me. I'm going to be able to hear it more easily. If you come to me and I, you don't love me, why am I going to listen to you? You don't have my best interest in heart. We listen to the ones who love us, right? I think we all know this. We let them teach us. We let them correct us. We, we know they're on our team. We know they are for our good when they love us. So, a question you, brothers and sisters, have to ask yourself before we get to Numbers 2 through 7 is, how are you doing at loving other members of this church? Because if you don't, you're not going to pour yourself out. You're not going to spend yourself discipling them. You see, this is the doorway, this is the gateway into the rest, into two to, two to seven. So, right now, ask yourself, how am I doing at loving the people in this room or, the, or those who couldn't be with us here 
this morning. How are you doing? Number one, discipling begins with love and joy. Number two, discipling works through instruction and imitation. Discipling works through instruction and imitation. We disciple in word and deed. The word leads, the church follows, and then we help each other to follow. Uh, Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 14, 9. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Ephesians 4.25, I read it to you a moment ago. Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are members of one body. Or verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. This fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. But these words of instruction must be followed by deeds. A word to say to others, follow me as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. A bunch of other texts I could give you. Ephesians 5.1, Philippians 3.17, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and, and so forth, right? He says it in 1 Corinthians 4, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child and Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Okay, so I, I taught Timothy... I set an example for Timothy. Now, Timothy's coming to you. Timothy is going to show you what I have taught him. Do you, do you see? So instruction and imitation. We, we want those we love to listen to us and then to follow our lives. And we do this, of course, because Christ himself is our first love. Love, instruction, imitation. Right? You see, you see the order there? And here's where I can just, I can look back and I can think of so many men in my life, men and women, who have instructed me and, and taught me, my grandfather, my grandmother, my, my father, my mother. I, I can think of, of men named Jeff, and Mark, and Dan, and Chip, Tom, and Bruce, and Sean, and Matt, and Michael. These are the men and women whom, whom God has blessed me with, who have come into my life, who loved me, who each played a little bit of a role in teaching me what Jesus is like so that I might love Jesus more. And, and, and Mark taught me Jesus' love of his word. And, and, and my, my dad taught me what, what unconditional love looks like. And, and, and Chip taught me what it means to give others the benefit of the doubt and to show grace and compassion. And on and on I could go, each of them showing me a different facet, a different angle on the beauty and glory of Christ. N none of them could do it by themselves. It takes many of them together. I, I think of how uh, when my wife and I moved to Washington, D.C., and we, we joined Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and we were newly married, and we didn't have any kids, we went over for dinner to Michael and Adrian's house. And we had dinner with them, and their, 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 at the time, four kids. And then after dinner, we did a little conversation, and then after that, they said, hey, listen, we need to put our, we'd like you to stick around. We'd love, love to talk to you guys some more, but we need to put our kids to bed. Uh, Instead of us just disappearing for half an hour and then coming back, what would you think? Would you want to come upstairs with us as we go through our bedtime routine? And, uh, you know, the thought bubbles in my head, in my wife's head was, oh, that's a little weird, but okay, sure. So we followed them up the stairs. We went into the kids' bedrooms, and, you know, kids got into the bunk beds, and my wife and I just sat on the floor, kind of hands on our knees, and I don't remember exactly what they read them. Maybe it was Chronicles of Narnia or something. Uh, they did a little Bible reading. They prayed with the kids. They may have sang a song. Oh, okay, this, is, this is one way to help raise kids. What were Michael and Adrian doing? They, they were putting their lives in front of us. They were, they were teaching us, but then they were showing us instruction imitation. What, what, what happens in the ministry of the Word? In the ministry of the Word, it's as if, it's as if the pastors come up here and they, got, they have a big whiteboard and they fill out an outline. Right? They say, 
fathers in the church, this is what a godly father looks like, a godly husband looks like. We still need to color in that picture, don't we? And then it says, I'm sitting in the bedroom in Michael and Adrian's bedrooms of their kids, and they're showing me that, color, that picture is getting colored in. Oh, I see. This is how you raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so having that example set for me, I turn and now try to do this for others. I I look for younger men in my life, younger men in the faith. Sometimes they might even be chronologically older. But I'm trying to set an example of godliness. I'm trying to set an example of what it means to be a good dad, a good good husband, a a good worker, a a good endurer of suffering, to to, to be generous, to be Christ-like even when insulted, and so on. That's what we do as Christians. That's not just a pastor's job. That's a Christian job. Number three. Number three. Discipleship affirms differences. It it works through instruction and imitation, but it also works through discovering one another's differences, and particularly in the context of the local church and the different gifts we've received. So listen to Paul again. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. So the call of discipleship is the call to follow and imitate, as I said, but it is not a call which smothers our differences. Instead, it highlights Holy Spirit-assigned distinctives and calls everyone to use those different gifts and those different experiences. And I've endured this, and you've endured that, and I've suffered through this, and you've enjoyed that. And the Lord is using all of these things to help build up the whole body. So very practically, what does that mean in my life? It means after service on Sunday mornings and I'm looking around the room and asking myself, who am I going to talk to? I'm, I'm not just looking for the people who look just like me, with whom I'm going to feel most naturally comfortable. Other, you know, white guys in their 40s who, you know, are kind of in my same socio-demographic group. And, we, you know, we talk about the same things. Rather, I'm looking for the older guy or, or the younger guy or, in some ways, I'm, I'm going to give a preference to, to people who come from different ethnic backgrounds than me. I, I'm, I'm going to hang out with, with, with the, you know, the young guy who's a, who's, who's a partier, and, but he's just brand new into the faith and he's stumbling along. But I'm also going to spend time with the, with the older guy who's a lot more mature than me in different ways. And uh, I'm looking for different gifts. There's a sense in which the, the church is an orchestra. You don't want them all to be violin players. Got some violins and some brass and some percussion, and it's that diversity which we're, we're looking for and, and seeking to facilitate. My, you know, my, my Christian brother Philip is—he's oh, really introspective and kind of emotional, and that yeah, he's always asking me about my heart. Philip, just you know, you talk about my heart so much. Praise God that He's given Philip to the church to help work with counseling. It's not me. Somebody like him. Or, 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 I, or I think of Josh. Josh is so administrative and always getting there on time. And you feel a little judged by Josh when you don't get there on time. And, and you know, he's just so careful with numbers and all of these things. And I'm just like, I'm a little more laid back than that. You know, it's kind of spontaneous, take it as it comes. But praise God that Josh is helping with the church's finances and organizing events and things like that shouldn't despise that. I should praise God for that, right? So back, back to you again. Do all of your friends look just like you? Do you just move into your comfort zone? Or do you move, okay, enjoy the comfort zone. That's great. No problem. But sometimes you step outside of it socially for Christ's sake, for the church's sake. Spending time with people who are different than you. Even if it's a little awkward. Christians don't need to be afraid of awkward. We can embrace the awkward. 
Embrace the, the awkward moment of silence where I'm not really sure what to say yet in this next situation. Why? Because we're doing it for an eternal good, an eternal gain. That's number three. Doesn't smother differences. Number four, discipleship is church-wide. Discipleship is church-wide. How impoverished you are, Christian, if you keep yourself at arm's length from the church, you deprive yourself of opportunities to learn more about the one you claim to love, Jesus. Every member of the body needs the whole body. I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I remember my wife telling me about a, 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 some conversations that went on in, in one of her, her small groups about two different women struggling with difficult marriages. And both, well, one of those women is, is being counseled. Well, they're both being counseled by the elders in, in, in the church because of their difficult marriages. And with one of those marriages, it's, it's long been a, a really tough process because she won't listen She's got a very absent, passive husband. And she's frustrated with him and she's trying to get us to get him to be a better husband and be more engaging to his wife, which we agree with. But at the same time, she won't really listen to us and what we're calling her to do. And she's very, very stubborn in it. Okay, well, one night in this, in this Bible study, she's listening to the other wife in a bad marriage talk. And this, this wife actually has the worst husband. He's less absent and passive. He's actually more, more abusive, at least emotionally. He's very harsh and severe with his wife. And this second wife was talking about her marriage and the difficulties and yet her ability to trust Christ and what God, she recognized that God was doing in the context of, of, of the marriage and of her. And as she was talking, the first wife in the less bad marriage was able to hear her say some of the very same things that the elders had said to her, but she couldn't hear it. And light bulbs started going off in her head, like, oh, oh, okay, I, I guess I, I can trust Christ in these circumstances. And she was able to hear from a sister what she wasn't able to hear from the elders. Discipleship is church-wide. You don't just need wise, godly elders. You need other Christians. We all need other Christians in other parts of the body. And because discipleship is church-wide, it's also, in life of us individuals, it's also the case in which discipleship is church-wide in that you as a church have a ministry, get this, to other churches in San Gabriel, Gabriel Valley. This, this morning, Rocky prayed for Alex Hong and his church in West Covina. Do you, do you realize that you have a ministry to them and, and other churches around here? Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only is the word of the Lord sounded forth in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith, Thessalonians, your faith has sounded forth from you everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven. Okay, so, so the Thessalonian church received gospel preaching from Paul. It came with the spirit and with power. How, how, how did Paul know that? Well, because they, they began to follow Paul and living like Paul. And then their example as a church radiated outward even across national borders, Macedonia and Achaia. So that folks in Macedonia and Achaia, Paul didn't have to say anything to them because they had heard from the Thessalonians. Church, could, could you not just build yourself up in love through this ministry and culture of discipling, build up other churches. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the work we're called to do? Number five, counseling is a subset of discipling. Counseling is a subset of discipling. I, I don't know of any reason from a biblical perspective to distinguish counseling from discipling. They're the same thing, helping other brothers and sisters 
follow Christ by embracing, imitate Christ by embracing his gospel. The, the difference between what we call counseling and what we call discipling uh, typically lies in the issue-specific nature of counseling. There's a certain area in somebody's life they need help with, and, but it's still under the same umbrella, right, of discipling. Help people follow Jesus. Uh, the nature and depth of that sin or that struggle call for more intensive treatment. Call it discipleship in the tougher cases. That's, that's what counseling is, discipleship in the tougher cases. It makes me think of passages like Jude 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. It makes me think of Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, both, both Jude and Paul recognize, okay, this is, this is a tough case. We need to move on in, in on this one. And though I think there's place for counseling outside of a context of a church, there's a place for referral for tougher counseling cases, I also think it's good to strive for the ministry of counseling and bringing it back into the life of the church. It requires the pastors to cultivate a culture of discipling, a culture of counseling. It requires them to train you to help counsel one another. Right? They'll continue to do that counseling, but they're also equipping you and training you. And, and, and as long as I'm on this topic of training and equipping, I, I was just thinking about youth ministry. Rocky mentioned that a, a, your youth pastor just left. Okay, how, how are you thinking about that? Is it the youth pastors or whatever person you may bring in or whatever person's response, is it their job to do the ministry of youth ministry? No, it's your job. And any person who you bring in or, or employ in that, in that project, their job is to equip you, friends, mothers and fathers, friends of other mothers and fathers, to equip you to do that ministry to the youth. Remember what the pastor's job is. It's to equip. Remember what your job is, to do the ministry. As in counseling, so in youth ministry, so in every other area of the church's life we might think of. Number seven. Oh, by, by the way, before I get to seven, this is one more reason why you benefit from, a church benefits from, a plurality of elders. Now, you presently already have a plurality of elders. You have, you have nine or ten elders on staff. But, but if, if, if occasion allows, if, if the opportunity is there, you, you might even consider at some point uh, nominating and affirming uh, men who aren't in the vocational ministry, who aren't in the pay of the church to function as elders. I am an elder at Chevrolet Baptist Church. They don't pay me a cent. I'm paid by nine marks. Nonetheless, I'm somebody who the church has recognized, okay, here's a man who's above reproach, who's able to teach, follow him as he follows Christ. And not just me, there, there, there's several other men. And what's the advantage of this to a church? Well, number one, it's more hands for the harvest. Number two, it's to your benefit because you get more examples of what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus if you work in finance and you make a lot of money? Well, what does it mean to follow Jesus if you work in a factory and don't make that much money? Well, I got this guy to point to and I got this guy to point to. Well, what does it mean to follow Jesus if you're a public school teacher and you're encountering a principal who's, who's asking you to say and teach things that, that defy your conscience, defile your conscience. What does it mean to follow Jesus there? Oh, we got, we got Elder Bob here who, who's in that situation. Watch him as, as he follows Christ. Do, do you see how it's to your benefit as you, you raise up and affirm more and more elders Number seven, six, thank you. Number six, a primary goal of discipling is to equip for discipling. I think a temptation of a lot of ministry leaders is to do everything themselves, to, to hoard the opportunity. And that's bad for the church when, even when, those leaders really could do a better job of 
helping others. Think of Ephesians 4 again. They're, they're to equip and train you to do the ministry. What, what that means very practically, friends, is it's better for you to sit in a Sunday school classroom with a young teacher who's not going to do as good of a job as the older teacher. It's going to be better for you in the long run because the more you have young teachers learning to do that, the more you're building a deep bench. The more this church is going to be known for. Man, we got a bunch of teachers here. Well, we can lend some out to other churches who need some help, right? So even if on this particular week, oh, this guy's a young guy, I'd rather hear from the, from the older pro, in the long run, isn't that better for you? Or, or inviting a, a young single woman along to help out prepare a meal for somebody and she burns her macaroni and cheese. Well, the fact that you're eating that burnt macaroni and cheese may not taste good this Sunday, but you're building and equipping this woman up to do hospitality. Isn't that better for all of you in the long run? In other words, part of discipling is looking to give ministry away and to back up yourself. I'm, I'm grateful that next week you get to hear from Mark Dever. Mark Dever is one of my main disciplers. So this week you get the disciple. Next week you get the discipler. I'm kind of like John the Baptist preparing. Not really. No. He's not Jesus. He's a punk just like you and me. All right. But, but, but you're going to see a man who has poured into me and given me ministry opportunities who could have done a better job himself but, but stepped out of the way. So this week, you're being ministered to by, for whatever it's worth, the disciple. Next week, the discipler. And you're going to get a little picture of this between him and me. I, I think that's an interesting and unique blessing there for you. And what Mark has done over the years as I've watched him is just give away authority, give away opportunity. He's so generous. He lets the younger man teach. He lets this other guy chair the elders meeting or chair the members meeting. He, he receives an invitation to go teach here and he says, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, do you want to go? Do you, do you want to take that invitation? And, and what do we have at that church? We have a deep bench. We have, we have a number of, of godly men and, and women who then following the same example are getting strong, learning to teach, learning to equip, and so forth. Listen to Paul. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I've, I've heard Mark illustrate it this way. Let, let me just borrow from Mark and give to you what I've heard from him. It, Listen to what you've heard from me, Paul says to Timothy, right? Generation one, from, from father to son. And in trust of other men, grandson, who will be faithful to teach others also. Great grandsons. Paul's thinking three generations down the line. Isn't that amazing? I remember one time I was spending time with a guy named Ben. ben Ben's wife said to him, Ben, he, he was kind of complacent in the faith, and she said, why don't you go spend some time with Jonathan? And okay, for me to disciple Ben, how do I do that? Well, one of the things I did with Ben is, hey, Ben, who are the other guys in the church who you're spending time with? How can I get Ben to love other men? It's just not like the wisdom I have for Ben. Let me disciple you. I'm the wise master. No. Okay, how can I get Ben to instruct and set an Im- a, a good pattern in love for other men in the church? That's, that's the job for me, in Ben's life. Do you see? Uh, this means, friends, we need to learn how to encourage one another and correct one another. Uh, part of equipping people for discipling means in giving godly encouragement and godly criticism. And that's hard. That's tough to do. That's a skill. Learn how to give godly encouragement, not flattery, and godly building up as fits the occasion, correction, right? How much I've benefited from people correcting me. I trust many of you have benefited from people correcting you. Number seven, 
And in some ways, friends, this is the most important point. Number seven, the power of discipleship is forgiveness and grace. The power of discipleship is forgiveness and grace. So far, much of what I've said could be applied to any field of discipleship, discipling. If we're talking about training young engineers, if we're talking about snowboarding, frankly, if we're talking about training Muslims, we're going to talk about instruction and imitation, right? That's just just the pattern of teaching people. In, In a sense, you might say, I've been giving you law. What's unique, however, about Christian discipleship. It's powered by the Spirit and the gospel, by the gospel of grace and forgiveness. It's, it's accommodated, you might say, to frail flesh. Listen to Jesus in John 13. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. There's the instruction. There's the imitation. As I've loved you, love one another. Okay, how, how has Jesus loved us? How exactly has Jesus loved us? Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, as I have loved you, as you were still sinning, as you were not beautiful but ugly. As you were not imitating me, but spitting in my face and rebelling against me. Right there, I loved you. I loved you with a forgiving, merciful, Passover love. So you must love one another. So you must love her when she says she was going to show up for nursery duty on time and promised you would be, she would be there, and week after week she wasn't on time, and so you had to fill in. So you must love him when you hear he said those things about you behind your back and now you're angry. So you must love the pastors when they disappoint you, frustrate you, make a decision that doesn't make sense to you, prove once again that they're not Jesus. So you must love one another, because that's how I've loved you. Here's what's crucial to understand, friends. The law does not have the power to change us. Instruction, imitation. Here's the right example. I don't have the power to change you. God must change you through His Son and through His Spirit. For what the law was powerless to do, Romans 8, because it was weakened by the flesh. Well, the, the law was powerless. God did by sinning His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So while we are called to instruct and call others to imitate, we're always doing this in the context of constant reminders of the gospel, constantly reminding those whom we are trying to lead that their worth and righteousness is not found in whether or not they keep the commands. And and we must simultaneously posture our our life and our face and, and our embraces, our hugs, toward people in, an, in, a, in a posture of grace and, and an accommodation of their own weakness. My love for you does not depend on you keeping these commands, which I am exhorting you to keep. Other forms of discipleship are not this way. They are meritocratic. You prove yourself, then you gain approval. You gain standing whether we're talking about engineering or sailing. My pastor who played college baseball uh, told me the story about how there was this one player on the team who was a national all-star. And so the coach would let this one player get away with breaking certain rules that he wouldn't let other players on the team get away with. Uh, One occasion my my pastor told me uh, the 
the all-star player had broken some rule. Maybe he'd showed up to practice late or he, he, he didn't come to practice. And, and the coach wanted to make a point to the other players on the team. He said, you think he's going to get in trouble like you guys would all get in trouble? No way. He's an all-star. And so what was my pastor and the other players on the team sitting there thinking, oh, okay, I, I see how this works. I have to prove myself through performance and obedience, obedience to, to your laws, coach, in order to gain your approval, in order to gain standing. Christian discipleship is the opposite. Approval, love, affirmation come first, and then the call to obedience and imitation come second. I love you. You're mine, says the Lord. Now, obey my commandments. And it's that love, that approval, which comes first, which works as the power, the, the gasoline, the engine for obedience and following. Remember what I said before. You follow the ones who you know love you, who approve of you, who, who like you. Right? And you follow them when you know they love you in your fallenness and finitude. You know you're broken. They still love you. Ah, huh. I'm safe with you. I'll, I'll listen to you. I think we all know how this works. So, so go back to that question I asked you at the end of point one. How are you doing at loving other members of this church? Let's specify that question a little bit more. Are you loving other members of this church when they perform? When they meet your standards and expectations? Or are you loving them graciously? Even when they disappoint you? Are you like that baseball coach? You better perform, better be an all-star. It's finally kind of stingy with his love. His love is finally about him. Is, is that how you love other members of this church? Or, or, or do other people in this church know that you're safe to be around? They know they can confess their sin to you. You still love them. You still have time for them. You'll still pour into them and seek to build them up. What, what is your love like for other people? members of this church. Now, if you're here this morning and you are a guest, Rocky uh, welcomed you. I'd I'd like to welcome you the same. Uh, Maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. We're we're certainly glad you're here. This theme of starting with love and then going to obedience, this brings us to the very heart of Christianity. And in some ways, uh, a friend, this is the most important thing you can hear from me in, in this church this morning. This is what the Bible calls the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. I, I've been talking about Ephesians 4, where we build each other up as, as a church. Well, that's set in the context of Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul talks about is the fact that all of us at one time were dead in our, our sins. But God raised us up with Christ. By grace we have been saved, says Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus went to the cross, paid the penalty for sin that you and I deserve, rose again, canceling the debt that we owe, and united us to God through Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then chapter 2 goes on and talks about In the same way you were divided from God, you were divided from other people. You were at war with other people. You were divided. But God in Christ has united us to him and he's united us to one another. He has made us one new man, says Paul, right? And so in the same way the debt has been canceled against me for my sin, so now I am called to cancel the debt of others against me. And friends, this again, what we call the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is how we can be forgiven our sins and and united to the people of God. 
you have more questions about this, I would love to talk to you about it afterwards. A Christian friend who brought to you would love to talk to you about this because God is calling you today to turn away from your sins and to put your trust in Christ and to follow Jesus and to follow Jesus by helping other people to follow Jesus. Okay, to the members of Evergreen Baptist Church, let's Let's think about the power of the gospel just a little bit more in your life and in discipling. I I could give example after example of how when I confessed sin to a brother and he forgave me, that made me want to grow. I told you about Mark, who's coming next week, who's been one of my main disciplers. I remember one evening at an elders meeting, uh, the way the elders Capitol Hill at the time worked is we, every, with every elders meeting we would pick one guy and we'd all ask him questions just to see how he was doing and this particular evening was my, my night for all the elders to go around and ask me how things are going with my how things are going with my kids and, and so forth and I remember we got to Mark and Mark asked me Jonathan how's your prayer life and at that moment my prayer life wasn't doing very well and I exaggerated in my answer I, I, I was I lied I said oh you know I don't this much and as soon as the words came out of my mouth I thought that's not true why did I say that but then moments passed and I was embarrassed to say anything and so then I sat there in the rest of the elders meeting feeling convicted and I went to bed got home went to bed feeling ah I remember I woke up at four or five in the morning just still kind of churning in my gut that I'd, I'd, I'd lied to the elders how much I've been praying And so that morning around 7, 8 a.m. or whenever I knew he would be up, I, uh, I called him. I said, Mark, last night at the elders meeting, you asked me how much I pray. I exaggerated. I lied. I'm so sorry. He said, oh, Jonathan, of course I forgive you, brother. Melted my heart. I'll follow that guy. I want to I be like him. The gospel of forgiveness is the power of discipleship. Parents, what's your overall posture towards your children? Is it law? They need the law. It tells us the pattern by which we must walk. But, but, but is that what they primarily feel from you? Or is it affirmation and grace and forgiveness? That's what your kids need. Now, there's a flip side to all of this. If the power of discipleship is the gospel, that means the disciple. Get this. The discipler must also learn to confess sin and weakness and vulnerability. Let me explain. My, my, my daughters, are, three or four of them, are, are teenagers now. But when they were all younger, kind of four, five, six, they thought, get this, they thought I was perfect. Daddy, you never sin. And for a time, I was grateful that I could sit a externally good, gospel, godly example of them, for them, of good behavior. But foolishly, I confess that made me reluctant to confess my sin to them. I didn't want to own up to my own mistakes because I sincerely believed that it would help them to see me being self-controlled and godly. So suppose on some occasion one of them misbehaved and suppose I responded in harshness. They in that moment thought they deserved that harshness because they knew that they were being disobedient and they had tender little girl consciences. And so I'm responding harshly and they're thinking they deserve that harshness. And so they're not indicting me, but my own conscience is indicting me. And I know I'm responding sinfully. And I know I'm responding with harshness. For a season, as I said, I had a hard time turning around to them later and saying, sweetheart, I sinned against you. I was harsh against you. I didn't want to ruin the image of me being godly in front of them. Daddy, you never sin. Here's one problem with that way of thinking and never for a moment that it's a lie that I never sin. 
My girls are sinners. And they're going to wrestle with sin for the rest of their lives. So, so what do they need? Do they need a perfect example of moral virtue who's never weak, never stumbles? Because they're going to stumble. Or do they need an example of a godly man getting down on his knees and saying, I'm a sinner too, sweetheart. I'm, I'm just like you. I need the bread of forgiveness. And you know what? I, I found that bread of forgiveness. I can tell you where it is. Isn't that what my sinful daughters need? Don't they need my vulnerability and my confession of sin so that they can follow me in the way of confession and finding forgiveness and grace in Christ? If I don't do that, if I'm just like, look at me, I'm godly, what am I going to raise? Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees did. That's not what Christians do. I want to raise Christians. I want you to raise Christians. I don't want you to raise Pharisees. And that means we learn to be weak in front of others, even the ones that we are seeking to lead. Right? It's the power of discipling is the gospel. The disciplers, too, need to confess sin and weakness. Friends, let me, let me conclude with what this looks like very practically in my life. Very practically in my life. This, this is for me. Take what you will from it. 6.30 a.m., I might call a brother and, and read through a chapter of Proverbs. This young, this young man's a fool. He really is. And I'm just like, he needs wisdom. Let's, let's read Proverbs. Five minutes. That's all I do. 6.30 a.m. Hey, let's do this. I meet with Doug every other week. Now it's more like once a month, actually. Usually we do it over lunch. He, he started dating a girl, so I talked to him about that. And he come, they come and talk to me and my wife. I met with Joel once a week for breakfast for about seven years. These days, not as much because we, we live further apart. Uh, every other Tuesday morning, I meet at Starbucks on the Hill with a couple of other elders for accountability for an hour and a half. Uh, every, every month, I do a Skype conversation with three other pastors from around the country. They're some of my oldest Christian friends. Craig and I meet in the evenings after the kids go down. Once, once these days, they actually don't go down after me. They're usually up later than me. But I meet with them, and, and, and we talk about life together late, late at night very often. Uh, my wife and I try to schedule hospitality for other families on a semi-regular basis. She's pretty busy these days, and is less regular. Um, I try to use casual time, hanging out with friends, to have meaningful conversations. So we're just hanging out, going to a movie, but I'm going to ask you on the drive to the movie, I'm going to ask you meaningful questions just to see how you're doing. I'm, whatever I have, I'm going to be deliberate with, and that, that's my call to you. Whatever you have, you, you may not have as much time or maybe more time. Whatever you have, be deliberate with us. For, for, for my wife, what this meant when we were younger and she, the, the kids, were, kids were all little, she would try to be intentional with the, the play groups, talking to other moms. These days she works full-time at the girls' school. They all go to a Christian school and she works teaching second grade there at the school. She, she tries to teach uh, other, she tries to listen to and learn from other teachers and, 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 and plays a discipling role in their life. And she comes to me and she shares the teacher gossip and she's like, what should I do? And I'm like, well, I'll try this. And uh, then she, she'll go and she, what I see effectively happening is I see my wife as it were pastoring a lot of these other teachers in the school. There's also other women in the church who will, who will come to my wife with questions about this or that, younger mothers especially. Uh, one of my jobs is to make it easier for my wife to go out and spend time with these other women. So I, I try to accommodate my schedule to allow her the freedom to go out and minister to other women. That's how I'm discipling other women. It's through my, my wife in part, right? T tangent, husbands, do you realize that one of your jobs is to equip your wife for the work of ministry? I hope you realize that. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, an elder must be able to manage his household. Why? Because the household, the, the wife, husband, husband, wife, children relationship is sort of training grounds for being an elder. That means a husband, chapter Ephesians chapter 5, part of a husband's job is to wash his wife with the water of the word. So husbands in the room... Do you work to equip your wife for the work of ministry? That's why God gave her to you. That's your job. Or are you passive? This morning I'm calling you to equip your wife 
And it's, it's, it's a glorious picture when it happens. End of tangent. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Evergreen Baptist Church, this is the picture of you. This is what you've been growing up into. And this is what you get to by God's grace in the equipping work of the pastors in your work among one another, speaking the truth and love to one another. This is what you continue to get to grow up into. And like the church in Thessalonica, this is how you get to be an example to other churches in the region, in the valley. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Father God, forgive us for being so selfish with our time and our lives and our love. Help us to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so work to instruct and imitate and highlight Holy Spirit distinctives and counsel and equip for discipling and to do all of this in the power of the gospel by which we ourselves live. In Jesus' name, amen.